welcome everyone to our Every Other Thursday podcast, where we cover the wide world of food service and hospitality. Our hosts cover both the relevant news of the moment and we invite key industry experts in for conversations that are informative, enlightening, and entertaining. Every Other Thursday is an approximately 40 to 50 minute conversation presented bi-weekly by Tabletop Journal. Now, here's your host of Every Other Thursday, Dave Turner. Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you back to our Every Other Thursday podcast. This is episode number 46 of Every Other Thursday. It's being recorded the week of June 23rd, 2022. I'm Dave, and I'm your host here at Every Other Thursday. And like always, I've got Greg and Jay here, my colleagues. How are you guys doing today? Super. Excellent. Beautiful day in Chicago. It's always a beautiful day in Chicago, I think. Uh, well, <laughs> thank you. You've had some heat though, right? Yes, it's been very hot and today is, is hot but tolerable. What do they mean by this word heat dome? What does that actually mean? Because that's the word I keep hearing a lot lately. I guess it's from the layman's perspective. You have this big body of hot air and then you get and it's trapped with cold air over the top of it. So it just sits here. Ah. And you kind, of, you kind of stew in it, I guess. Or we say braise in the food service business. <laughs> anyway, today I'm excited because we resolved the scheduling issues and we're going to have Jason Crowell with us today. We talked about him last time. And Jason is the general manager of a restaurant at the Houston Galleria in the Nordstrom store there at the Houston Galleria. And he's going to be our guest. And as you recall, he had to reschedule, but today we've got him here. And I really love the story with Jason because he comes from such a food service and hospitality family background. And I think I'm really uh, impressed when people are second and third generation in the hospitality business, probably a little bit like the supplier side too, Jay. I mean, there's a lot of people in the manufacturer's rep business and in manufacturers, their dads, their moms, whatever have been. So they, you get generational people. Yeah. Birds getting thin, but for different reasons. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing that makes me interested in, uh, in the Jason story is that he started in the kitchen and now he's out, out from behind the stove. Mostly, I think for, you know, the large portion of what he's doing now is general manager type situation. And I always think that's interesting how to transition from behind the, the stove to the front of the house and in the overall management. And I think there's a lot of chefs out there that may, may be contemplating that. And I'm, I'm hopeful that Jason will give some insights to some of the challenges and uh, that he had and how he overcame some of those challenges. I'll tell you who'd be jumping up and down would be the Nordstrom people when, if and when they see this because he embodies what, you know, brick and mortar stores are closing left to right. Why, why is Nordstrom was growing and going to be here forever? It's because of people like him. I mean, their policy is just like ours, a Stolzel for life. It's Nordstrom's for life. You could almost overlay the same thing that we wrote up for that. And I mean, that's what they do. Yeah. My Nordstrom is the best retailer on the planet. It's all personal connection. I think that they've got a lot more food service outlets, food and beverage outlets than people realize. I know we spoke about the one in Chicago on Michigan Avenue a bunch of times and the, and the uh, great experiences we had there. I wanted to ask him if they did any sip and shop. I wonder if they ever have things where you up on that floor, you give you a glass of champagne while you're shopping for a period of time and all that stuff. I don't know. We'll have to see. We can ask him when he comes on. Yeah, that'd be a great thing to do. Anyway, we'll get Jason in here. We'll find out the answers to all these mysteries. And But first... We want to get the general business out of the way. And of course, this week's episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by Tabletop Journal. Tabletop Journal is where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places all in the world of hospitality tabletop. And so now with that, let's get this episode number 46 of Every Other Thursday. Get it started. And everybody, let's give a great big Every Other Thursday welcome to Jason Crowell. Jason, in our intro, we've done a short tease on who you are and what you do, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and maybe what brought you into this crazy world of food service? And and also, I want to say thank you for joining us today. I know you've got a busy schedule, so I uh, really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, a little bit about how I got in this business. My father was in the hospitality business as an innkeeper and working hotels and front desks and general managers. Um, so I was brought home from the hospital upon being born to a Holiday Inn where they lived as the innkeeper. And um, I guess it's not necessarily how I got into it. I think I was destined to be in it, so to speak. So it got into you. Yeah, it got into me, not I got into it. 
So at 13 years old, I started working as a dishwasher um, to learn a good work ethic. And they'd feed me once a day. And I think at 14, I, I was able to start getting a paycheck. And 15, uh, learning, you know, the ins and outs of peeling vegetables and basic prep. You know, as a dishwasher, you you seek interest of what, what the prep cooks and all the cooks, line cooks, pantry cooks, all the different types of cooks are doing. So I had the opportunity as a dishwasher to learn how to the basic peel vegetables and peel shrimp and put away product that was coming in. And that seeked my interest to want to grow as a cook. And then I worked up the brigade of whether it be a work in the fryer to the pantry to the broil grill, saute, and then eventually an AKM, assistant kitchen manager, and then eventually a sous chef, and then eventually going to culinary school, Johnson Wales University, and then becoming an executive chef. And then here I am today as a general manager. So I took off my chef coat and jumped to the dark side uh, in 2010. Wow. I'm always really impressed because on how many people in the food service business started as a dishwasher and progressed up through it. And because being a dishwasher, I mean, I started actually as a washing pots and pans. They wouldn't even let me do the breakables. Okay. They put me in pots and pans because this stuff wouldn't break. But it's amazing to me how many high level senior people started in really some of the lowest level positions you can imagine. Mm-hmm. I highly encourage it. And a big shout out to Johnson and Wales there too. Yeah. Where'd you go to school, Jason? Which campus? Uh, I went in the North Miami campus. Oh, okay. Did you know uh, Irv Schneider, Dr. Schneider? Yes. Yes, I did. Dr. Schneider is my childhood best friend. We still remain friends today. Oh. Reggie Dow and all those guys. Yeah, interesting. Small world. Well, Jason, you've made a lot of steps along the way within the hospitality world. And now you work in a you work in a unique venue, I think. You work for Nordstrom. And I'm curious, first of all, Nordstrom isn't really the focus of of this conversation, but I, I really want to just touch on it. I want to let people know that, you know, Nordstrom's is a pretty big hospitality operator, right? Yes. The food and beverage side of things started with Nordstrom. Nordstrom has been around since 1901, but the food and beverage aspect didn't start and it started very small compared to what it is today. It started in 1979 with just, Hey, let's get some sandwiches and some snacks and uh, some bottled beverages and a refrigeration case. So you can grab it and you don't have to leave the store and you can continue to shop. And then they found me in 2002 at a culinary school. So they were, you know, it changed from 79 to 02 to where they were looking for young professionals out of culinary school to help facilitate the high end quality of food and quality of service that the customers have come to expect with buying apparel. So yeah, now we have people from all the best culinary schools in the country. So you've been there 20 years. Yeah. Wow. I started in 02. I did leave for six years to go work for family, but came back and yeah, I've been back since 2010. So, hey, Jason, so not trying to give anything away, you know, I don't want any secrets, but like, can you try to give us an idea of how big that business is? I mean, like with number of people or number of guests or number of units, can you just give us a kind of a feel for, you know, how big the business is? Yes. I'll say we generate millions and millions of dollars as a division within a billion dollar company, but we... You know, it's no secret we're public. So we have 100 full line stores, which are the stores in which they have restaurants in, as opposed to the Nordstrom Rack, which is the off price retailer that we have. And I mean, there's probably 250 of those Nordstrom Racks, but they they don't have, and there's going to be 200 more, and there's they're a growing business. And the restaurant division, we did have 116 stores. I'm not saying anything that the public doesn't know. And the 16 stores closed on uh, 2020. We looked at basically, I mean, everything, whether it be the lease within the mall or how well that store was doing, 
on profitability. We looked at everything, the amount of sales. And I mean, 2020 was a time where we ripped the Band-Aid off a lot of things, whether it be increasing our quality of to-go program, whether it us getting a third-party delivery service because customers want to know how to get our food to their home. Um, it was a time for a lot of things to change. And I will say with working for a hundred plus year old company, one thing that is for sure in order to be successful is change. You have to have it and adapt and overcome for everything. For me, and I want Jay to comment on the, on a visit we had to the Michigan Avenue store, but I, I will just say this. To me, I love having that that warmth, that welcome, that hospitality brings. I love that in the Nordstrom stores where I've been and, and, and seen a, a food and beverage outlet. And, and uh, Jay, why don't you tell uh, uh, Jason a little bit about the experience we had at the Michigan Avenue store? Yeah, it was terrific. You know, that store is where the bar and the food the food side of it is. It, it was on the men's department floor, I guess, for Dave, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing I told David is, I mean, obviously the service was great. They had a great selection of good bourbons, which we loved, and we had a couple. But it was fun sitting there surrounded by great products and watching people pretty much smiling all the time as they look through the clothing and the shoes and all this other stuff. It's hard to believe, but just sitting in that environment, it just there was nothing to feel bad about. It, it was just terrific. And North, I've always been a fan of the store. So, you know, I come from Sears Roebuck. That's where I sharpen my teeth as a sales guy. But, uh, yeah, it, it was a great experience. We hung around there and, and relaxed. And if I, if I had it my way, I'd still be there. <laughs> but it was it was an outstanding experience. The service was outstanding. The prices were fair for what we got. I mean, it wasn't overly expensive. But my friend David bought me a drink and bought me a shoe shine like I've never had in my life before. We were right, right into the shoe shine department. Yeah, I mean, I, I always talk about the shoe shine too, because the shoe shine and, and the same guy's been there for like a million years at that at that one store. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. He was there 20 some years, as long as that store's been open, I guess, or whatever. Yeah. Really, really a, a welcoming uh, environment there. The only thing I would say about, and I understand it's a logistics thing, but we were going to get like some finger food and the problem is the kitchen, I guess, in that store is above. Is, is that correct, David? It was above us on another floor? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Yeah, and the guy was real honest. He said, you know, take about 30 minutes. We were just at the end of the, the second drink, so we, we had to go. But other than that, I mean, it was just awesome. There was nothing negative about it. Yeah, so what's unique about that store is we have a standalone bar called Habitant, and that's probably where you were. Yep. And it's just a bar. That does offer some small bites, but yes, it does come from another kitchen. I had the opportunity to open up the one in Puerto Rico, and uh, we were going to have one in the Houston Galleria for this 2020 remodel, but due to the pandemic, it's going to be a little bit further down the road. But we have about eight to 10 between Washington, Chicago, and a few others, and it's a larger selection, larger list of wines. Because we've identified, especially since opening opening up our New York stores, we have a men's and a women's store right there on Broadway in New York. And I highly encourage you to go check that one out. They have what's called a shoe bar. So customers can have, you know, if I'm getting a $1,000 pair of Christian Louis Vuittons, I'm going to want a bottle of Vuv while I'm, <laughs> I want to feel good, right? <laughs> Make Make myself feel a little bit better about buying those $1,000 shoes. We're all about creating experiences. And I don't think you can have a better experience than drinking some bubbles or some bourbon or scotch, whatever's your poison while shopping. Both Jay and Dave have talked about this experience a couple of times now on our podcast, and they really had a great time. And it sounds like a really excellent operation you know having said that you know here you are you came up through the ranks and uh, went to culinary school and one of the big issues and it's no secret for everybody out there is uh, labor finding good people to place in the, in the right jobs what do people think that have come up in through food service about working at a nordstrom's versus you know an independent restaurant or a chain restaurant is this something that's coveted or do you have to really convince people? Well, great question. First of all, in the last couple of years, it's been more difficult than ever. I mean, I have not stopped working 
since 1993. Throughout any recession, depression, gas crisis, war, whatever you want to say, I've worked every single day since then, minus a couple of vacations here and there. But, you know, a lot of us come to work for Nordstrom for the quality of life. I lived in Miami for a long time, and I, I can remember being on a schedule 5 p.m. to 3 a.m. You know, as a cook. <laughs> so the quality of life, being able to work for Nordstrom on getting, first of all, what what is a quality of life? You know, in the food service industry, it's a work, work-life balance. It's not working 80 hours a week. It's working 40, 45, 50. It's having benefits. Benefits are hard to come by in our industry, whether it be dental, medical, vision. 401k is hard to find. How many servers out there can get their 401k matched? You know, I'm not working till midnight. We close at eight or nine. I can still get to bed at a reasonable time uh, and get up at a reasonable time. There's just so many benefits with working for Nordstrom as opposed to freestanding restaurants. It's a large corporation. Their most important asset is their people. Anybody can have the product. Not everybody can have the people. So it's important for them to treat their people right in order for the employees to service the customer properly. It's really not rocket science, but it takes everyone living and breathing the culture in order for that to happen. A lot of us with Nordstrom, you know, I'm sure we're offered jobs and we're great operators and we're people knocking on our door and want to hire us. But Nordstrom is such a great company to work for that. Let me let me give you an example. As a server, I was a server making two thirteen an hour in 2004. No, it was 2001. I moved to Miami two weeks before 9-11. And so I had to get pretty scrappy on how I was going to make my money in order to pay my rent. I had a server job. I had an oyster shucking. I mean, I was this close to selling bottled waters on the corner of 135th and Biscayne to make that rent money. You know, get a case for five bucks to sell them a dollar a piece. Yeah. Hey, whatever it takes, man. Everybody was laying off everybody. So it was hard to find a job. But for example, for servers, those tips that you claim for our company are factored in to your hourly wage when you take your vacation. I've never heard of that anywhere besides the company that I work for. It's pretty remarkable. So if you're claiming, say, you know, the server makes seven bucks an hour and you are claiming $1,500 a week, your hourly rate might be $49 an hour. And so when you take your 80 hours of paid time off, you get your your pay that you would get the same as if you were getting gratuity each day. Wow. I mean, I could keep going on and on and on, but uh, it's pretty amazing, pretty remarkable. I want to move off the Nordstrom thing just a bit, but I do think that the non-traditional revenues, and I could put Top Golf in there and, and some other uh, what I would call non-traditional food and beverage outlets. I do think that there's an attraction. When you say quality of life, Jason, I, I, I think that the grind of food service, and, and listen, if you stay in food service very long, you have to love it. Because you're, you have to be that, have that service mentality and whatever. And as somebody used the term with me on, on the supplier side, you become a lifer. But the quality of life issues, I think, particularly uh, now that we've been through COVID and everything, I, I think are really much higher priorities for people. And, and therefore, I think traditional food service outlets still struggle to get people. And it sounds like while you may struggle to get the right people, the things that you just mentioned make your situation or the situation working for your company a little bit more attractive than maybe working in an up and down the street chain restaurant or something. I will say that in the last few months, we've identified that our minimum wage needed to be 15. And so in some markets, it's even higher. Mm -hmm. We have ripped off that Band-Aid and it's been more attractive in addition to the regular quality of life, in addition to the hourly pay. But yeah, like the untraditional facets, I mean, there's rest, there's movie theaters with restaurants in them. There's the top golf and everything. Yep. What's interesting is there's less 
people in the food and beverage field than there was in 2019. A lot of the people that I know that were in this business that may have been like the most amazing craft bartender in town is now a manager of a call center because he, he had to figure out how to provide for his family while bars were closed down for 18 months. So the industry has had a huge shift in the last year and a half, two years. And, you know, has it been a little scary? Absolutely. Is everybody in the restaurant business super resilient and we're going to figure out a way? Yes, that's our MO. So with all that said, I mean, a year ago, it was where the customer going out to dine would know more than the person waiting on them. Great point. You would say, hey, this this old-fashioned goes in a double old-fashioned glass or a rocks glass. Oh, you don't know what this terminology is or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. But I will say in the last three or four months, I've seen a lot of different types of labor force. And it's people that I feel are super young, maybe 21, 22, 23, that are super eager to give great service, learn about food, and take care of people. And so that, that's been super rejuvenating as a year, a year and a half ago, I'm like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We have all these jobs and restaurants and hotels and not enough people to fulfill them. And so the scare is that everything going electronically or touchscreen, order at the table with an iPad or at the bar, you know, that's the biggest fear. Because at the end of the day, people can go eat anywhere they want, especially in a restaurant city. People go to see people at the end of the day. That's what I teach. You know, people can go eat wherever they want. So make sure you develop a relationship, have fun doing it. At the end of the day, create a great experience, and they'll come back. So do you want your uh, units to be destinations, or do you want them to be your places to be first retail and then food service? So we have already been identified as a destination and a trip driver. You know, people go to eat. So no matter how bad the economy is, people might not go buy that accessory they may need, but they're still going to go eat. So if I got them coming in for a great happy hour or some amazing chef's features and they end up buying a shirt or some pair of shoes on the way out, then fantastic. Before we head into the break, I want to get onto this thing about moving out of the kitchen into the front into general management of it. I think that's a very interesting and what I think is a really tricky move for a lot of people uh, that come up through the with a culinary background. What are some of the challenges you had making that kind of a change? Some of the challenges I had were, you know, I spent 18 years in the back of the house, so yep. yeah, <laughs> I had to definitely do a 180 on some some verbiage. Uh, okay, you had to get rid of the salty language. <laughs> yes, but I'm an extrovert. So if you're, I highly recommend if you're an extro, introvert, stay in the kitchen. I mean, you definitely have to like talking to people. I mean, depending on the day, I might see 500 people or 1500 people, guests, you know, and that's not, that's in addition to 50 staff members. So if you're going to make that jump, I, I can remember me being very concise and observant for my first year out on the floor, just really trying to digest and be a sponge to the way in which things are said. Because how you tell a cook that's been cooking for 35 years how to do something is totally different how you tell a 20-year-old hostess. So you definitely have to have someone that's willing to teach you and mentor you and train you. And if you're not, you need to do a lot of R&D. If you're not going to have that that mentor or that side-by-side person working with you, you definitely have to go out and observe and see how managers carry themselves. You definitely have to have an overall awareness 
which most chefs do in their kitchen. They typically pivot and put themselves in a place where to where they can see everything that's going on. And you have to do that in a, as a general manager. When I was jumping from the back of the house to the front of the house, I was super concerned. My biggest concern is that I wasn't going to have that euphoric feeling of all cylinders pumping on a Friday night and the orchestra, because that's what a kitchen is, is as an orchestra, if everybody's on their note, it works in, in harmony and unison with one another. And I was certainly scared of longing for that feeling that you have, which I think I may have described it pretty good, but yeah, it's, it's something that, and, and by the way, I do get that feeling. <laughs> Luckily, it's in a different form or shape. It's just everything working and where you can just sit back and, and see it all happen. It's big picture. So yeah, it's not, it's not easy for anybody that wants to do it. Jump from the back of the house to the front of the house, but it is definitely something that you can do. If I did it, anybody can do it because I started in a time before the Food Network. It was an unglorified position. My grandparents didn't used to tell their friends what I did when I was a cook at 1995. So it's definitely changed in a short period of time to where there's these five-year-olds and eight or ten-year-olds cooking on the show with Gordon Ramsay yelling at them. <laughs> so I think the challenges that, that you describe, I'm sure are there for chefs of all types, but are there any specific suggestions? Did you have any additional formal education, any management courses that you might've taken or anything else? Or was it all uh, on the job uh, kind of thing, just modeling uh, what you saw going on around you? That's a great question. I Luckily, was in some management positions prior to culinary school. And then upon going to culinary school, you know, they had some management courses, but it was more the text and the book part of the management side. And I didn't have any additional classes that I took upon becoming a manager because I was a graduate of Johnson Wales in 02 and I didn't become a, I didn't take off my chef coat till 2010. I just was fortunate enough to be able to work under some really good general managers that were able to work down our inverted pyramid at my company. And I can name three or four of them, which I'm not going to, that were my general managers that became regional or divisional managers. And so I, I had some really good, and I think it's also important I mentioned I've been doing this 29 years. How many times have I gone back to being a student in 29 years? You know, how many times have I needed to hone in on my own skill set, or maybe I've mastered one, and then I need to build on that foundation of of another? And I will say Nordstrom, you know, does we're all about, yeah, we're all about, you know, learnings. And so learning from each other and I was just fortunate enough to be able to be with a great group of people in New York this last past week, uh, Manhattan, with uh, the rest of the regional leader apprentices throughout my company to break down silos and walls, so to speak, to make the world even smaller. And that's what's great about the company I work for is thinking outside the box and trying something to see if it works. And if it doesn't, that's okay. We learn from it. If it does, what else could we do to build on this that's working? Just having that open dialogue and being honest is super valuable. Well, we're learning a lot and our listeners are learning a lot today from Jason Crowell. Jason is the, I want to get this right, Jason, you are the general manager of the restaurant, the Houston Galleria store and a regional leader apprentice. Is that correct? Yes. We'll, we want to find out more about what that regional leader apprentice thing is all about when we come back. But more specifically, in, in the segment two, we want to talk about what you see as trends coming out of COVID and maybe what your opinion is of the future of, of food service, not only in restaurants and in the company you work for, but food service and hospitality in general. That sound good? Absolutely. Okay, cool. We're here with Jason Crowell, and we'll be right back, everybody, with more every other Thursday.
This episode of Every Other Thursday Podcast is brought to you by Tabletop Journal. And for most of us, the greatest memories we have involve great food and great beverage with family and friends. And whether those gatherings happen at home or in a restaurant or a catering situation, Tabletop plays a critical role in creating those memories. For more than 11 years now, Tabletop Journal has been covering tabletop in the food service and hospitality industry, all while raising the awareness of just how important that tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience and the creating of great memories. Be sure to check out Tabletop Journal at tabletopjournal.com. Tabletop Journal, celebrating the products, the people, and the places, all in the world of hospitality tabletop. And now, back to our podcast. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Jason Crowell. Jason is the general manager of the restaurant of Nordstrom's uh, at the Nordstrom store in the Houston Galleria and also the regional leader apprentice for uh, Nordstrom in the food and beverage. And before we get into the trends and stuff, Jason, tell me a little bit about that regional leadership thing, the RLA program you mentioned. Yes. So there are several as a company. We have the nation broken up into regions. And I am in the, I spent many of my time in the Southeast out of Miami, opening the first store, Village America Park in Coral Gables. However, since July of 2019, I moved to Houston and I am in the Houston Galleria and uh, we just had a remodeled store and restaurant um, in 2020. And there is about, I'd say 25 to 30 of us amongst I'll say chefs who are regional leader apprentices or and or general managers who are regional leader apprentices. And we're we're to help support operations and anything. I guess we're the so-called experts of what we do. But with that said, we'll be the first ones to say we don't know and we're not the expert and we'll we'll get that information. And it's just to alleviate some of the time from the regional manager getting all of these calls. So that's a little bit about the role. That's a cool program. I think uh, um, companies, whether you're in the food service or or any other kind of business, if you can if you can do that, that gives uh, really some developmental opportunities for people. Absolutely, and I also I, I forgot to say it does also prepare you for your next role. Most importantly, mm-hmm. cool. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and get into trends. And uh, Greg are, is our trend guy, and he goes around the country. He's he's always the one who's bringing back the hot new trends he sees for uh, food service and dining. But Jason, what do you see is on the horizon on menu trends or dining trends or beverage or or even demographic trends? You're in a great position because Houston is a great laboratory for that kind of thing. It is. It is huge restaurant city. I mean, so probably a lot of the same trends that Chicago, New York, L.A., Miami is seeing here in Houston. First of all, with the pandemic and all, you saw a trend of everybody going from maybe their very inexpensive to-go packaging to maybe a, a higher end because everybody having to compete with one another during a pandemic. One of the things that we saw here in Texas is to-go alcohol. If you needed to pick up a couple of old fashions while you were picking up your dinner on your way home, that you would have two little mason jars with old fashions, you know, and then like having masking tape over them or whatnot. And that trend is here to stay and is still going on. One of the trends within the restaurant division that we've seen, even as a company, is we've, we really had to dive into our licensing, so to speak, and and ensure that everybody's compliant with state and local laws. But here in Texas, you're able to purchase alcohol for off-premise consumption, whether that be an unopened bottle of wine or, you know, obviously if you're drinking a, a bottle of wine and you don't finish it, we can put it in a bag and tape it up with the receipt and you can take it home. But that makes so much sense, you know, and and unfortunately, in lots of the parts of the country, a lot of parts of the country, you know, where they had that rule open during the pandemic, now they've gone back and nixed everything, which I think is really short-sighted. Well, let's be honest, a lot of money is made in alcohol, <laughs> more so than food. So 
you want restaurants to survive, you know, like for example, when I was in Manhattan last week, it's now common and staying, I think, for those little refrigerated boxes sitting on the street out in front of the restaurant because you weren't able to dine inside. So at one point they had everybody sitting six feet apart in these, it's almost like a trailer, if you will, but with tables inside this air conditioned space. I mean, so many things have changed. And as far as I know, those aren't going away. And because <laughs> my New Yorkers, my New Yorkers are like, yeah, it's taking up all the parking, these things sitting up in front of the restaurants. So, I mean, from to-go packaging, one thing we've done is third-party third party delivery service. So, you know, while restaurants have, okay, so we've had labor issues, not being able to staff. So, therefore, you have shortened hours of operations. Well, you still have customers wanting to know how to get your food to their home. Well, how are you going to do that? Whether it be Uber Eats, DoorDash, or whatever it is, a business that is dying, you better think about getting one of those <laughs> delivery services. So, I mean, it has just changed in so many ways. You know, that's what we do. We evolve. You've had to ensure that all of your social media menus are always up to date, constantly going in there and making sure that everything is accurate, whether it be pictures or pricing or verbiage, you know, the to-go packaging, ensuring that everything is packaged correctly, because the worst thing you can do is get something home and then you don't have the sauce that you were expecting. And that's the reason why you ordered it. So, you know, and you don't have a, a chance to fix it and make, ensure that that customer is happy before they leave. Well, because they're at home. So you got to, it takes a lot more details you know, because the customer may not be in front of you at that time. We offer curbside pickup now, even with our food and beverage outlets. So we've, we were offering that prior to the pandemic. If you wanted to pick up your pair of shoes, your suit, your altered suit, or whatever it may be. But now you can also say, hey, let me get that club sandwich. Have that down at curbside when I pick up my suit, my altered suit. So lots of trends have changed. We were even doing virtual cooking classes as a company or posting them on social media so people could follow. You know, now it's about getting that customer back in. So whether it be holding cooking classes or wine demonstrations or how to pour wine or how to pair alcoholic beverages with food, it's getting those customers in front of you and creating an experience. Because like I said, you can go eat wherever you want. And people go to see people. It's just the way it is. But lots of things have changed during the pandemic. One of the things that we have talked a lot about here on Every Other Thursday, Jason, is the pandemic really brought to the top of mind the connection between human beings, uh, what good food and good beverage does. Uh, and that's what we're, that's what the hospitality business is all about, is really bringing good people together with family and friends and, and uh, people you love. So it's great. There's lots of Dark clouds economically uh, on the horizon. You can't you can't go anywhere without reading a headline about economic slowdown or even recession. Now, you've had a lot of different experiences in your bag of tricks in your history, even though you're still a really young guy. What do you think the future is for not only your restaurant and, uh, and and some of the other company outlets, but for food service and hospitality in general? How do you see that as we head into what I guess most people are predicting is some sort of a, at a minimum economic slowdown and a maximum recession? What do you think the future of food service is going to be over the next handful of years? I feel like it's going to be more personable, more personal, like whether that meaning you figuring out how to prepare, have the dinner that you would have at a restaurant at your home. So maybe, you know, and it's something we do with the company I work for is offering large format meals. For example, we have, we're doing a, a gnocchi pasta class July 23rd, where we're bringing customers in, teaching them how to make gnocchi, and then they get to take gnocchi home so that they can prepare it at home. And now they, they can be the, become the expert. And a different month might be a different food item. But like we offer pasta for two and you get a four course meal for $49.
and you take it home and everything's made and you can take it out of the package if you want and plate it and make it look nice. But I think it's finding a way to be relevant and make people feel good when people need that. Do you have that flexibility locally or is that Nordstrom wide? You know, those kind of classes, ideas come from. That's Nordstrom on a national level. And each one of us do these things. We might pilot it at a few stores and it be successful or not be successful. That's where the regional leader apprentices come into play again, us testing things. Um, And in the event that it does well, then we might, you know, roll it out nationally. At the end of the day, it's creating experiences and making people feel good. So whatever the question we ask ourselves is, what does that look like? Because it's changed more so than ever in the last few years. And so I think being able to put together something that someone can take home with them after having a monetary feel good eating by eating something like what, how is that going to be remembered other than they might be able to take something home with them that helps them remind them of that experience and want to do it again or telling the story of that experience is making them feel good again and then making somebody else feel good. So I think it's just going to make things. Yeah. I mean, is it going to be easy? No, (laughs) we have to go through a recession again in this fall winter. No, it's not going to be easy, but I think us being able to, and having a zoom meeting or something of that nature, being able to have us show them how to prepare it, whether it be us sending the ingredients to their home in a care package or box that they will have to mise en place everything out, or it might be already mised out. And then they put everything together based off of the instructions that we're telling them. And you can't do too big of a group, but you can do eight to 15 at a time. And, and that creates, it creates a, you know, and we've done that in the past, actually, sending bottles of wine with the customer and some, you know, charcuterie or fruit and cheese or something like that. And showing them how to make a cheese board or charcuterie plate or. Your point is really too, though, is you've got to be flexible. You've got to probably be agile as a company, think a little differently, keep your eye on the customer. And I, what I love about your company is the strong branding just in general of that brand. Brands matter. We talk a lot about brands here on every other Thursday, and I, and I think that brands really matter. And for instance, you brought you've brought up a couple of times the to-go packaging and how that product gets when it gets home. And I think that how that product, when they open it up in their home, that food and beverage product is, it has to be consistent with the quality of what they already know the brand to be. Because brands create expectations, and that's that issue of brand trust whether it's uh, Nordstrom or, or Coca-Cola, uh, both strong brands, but you have an expectation of that brand. Yeah. And when it doesn't deliver in, in some way or fashion, that erodes that brand trust all the time. I want to switch a, a little bit of gears again here. And we and within our audience, uh, Jason, we have a lot of folks on the supplier side within, that are listening probably right now. And do you have any advice uh, on what you look for in a great supplier product, whether it be a food and beverage product or small wares or even, God forbid, a tabletop uh, supplier or a glassware supplier like Jay's company, Stozel? Yeah, absolutely. Glad you brought that up. So first, I mean, you've heard me mention people, 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 right? So before we even are able to develop a relationship from a person-to-person basis with a wholesaler and me being the customer as the restaurant, you have to have a company that stands for the same things that we stand for. So that means self-sustainability. That means, you know, maybe getting locally when you can. Legal labor, super important. We have a whole team in Nordstrom that makes sure all the apparel and anything made that we sell is made legally and not from illegal labor, so to speak. We got it. This is a fringy legal crowd you're hanging around today, uh, Jason. So we got that legal versus uh, non-legal stuff. Okay. 
especially Jay. Jay's, Jay's probably the, the most non-legal of, of uh, the group here today. With I have him. the most jail time of anybody on the screen, so it's okay. <laughs> Greg's working on catching me. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. I, I but What I really like is you're, what you're describing is the value, the matching up of values, the core values of your company. Yeah, and thank you for saying that because that's exactly it. Is and then And then once we've established that we have the same core values, then it's important to have that relationship. Do I need to see my wine rep every week? No, I can call him. But is it important for him to come by and see how I'm doing and how he can support me, whether that be offer a $150 gift card to the person that sells the most wine of the contest that I'm running, whether that be do you need some dummy bottles, you know, for display, whether that be, do you need me to pull some samples? It's about relationships. And again, it's about the relationship. It's about the people. And I feel like a broken record. Like I can go eat anywhere I want, but I'm going to go where I, where that person knows me. I'm going to go where that person knows I like a large format ice cube as opposed to a lot of cubes. Or I like my Manhattan not up and I like it perfect with sweet and driver moon. You know, I am going to go where I develop a relationship. And so for for those vendors, I mean, one, you gotta get in line with making sure that your economic impact is not hurting the environment. Environmentally aware is another thing that I forgot to mention. That's super important. We do a lot of partnerships even monthly. So whether that be something that's organic, whether it be family owned as a company, I have the family come in and shake my hand all the time in 20 years. So standing for the same things that we stand for, building that relationship, not just calling on the restaurant to see if they need something, to see how they're doing. Have that small thing that you can talk about with each other, whether it be that person's child or family or whatever it may be. It's life short. So don't just let it all be numbers and and what do you need and let me try to get this cheaper for you or less expensive. So as I work in my career, I'll say this is way more important now than it was 10 years ago to me. And each year, it gets more and more important. Yeah, I think uh, we we find uh, uh, we talk about the issue of uh, transactional relationships versus what I would call real trusting relationships. It has to be a lot more than just something that's transactional. I get a product, I sell it to you at a price, and you buy it. Those relationships move around a lot, and they, uh, those customer, whether you know whether it's your customer, or whatever, or supplier, or an ENS supplier to a restaurant. I think everybody's looking for, or the, the smart people anyway, are looking, you know, they're looking for long-term relationships because we know that if you have a good relationship over a period of time, things go wrong. And you want to be able to know that you can count on people to make it as right as they can uh, whenever anything would go wrong. Uh, and hopefully they don't go all wrong very often. Jason, do you have much um, flexibility regarding suppliers at your level about choosing them? Or is that chosen you know, upstream uh, at a more corporate level? Great question. That is chosen a little bit more upstream. In years past, uh, we had a little bit more flexibility, but we, in the you know, if we had a local produce, you know, and they had all, all the things that we stand for and they had local burrata and mozzarella and cheeses available, that didn't have BGH, bovine growth hormone, you know, shelf stabilizer, then we would consider looking at them and bringing them in. But in the last couple of years, you have a lot more purchasing power and kickbacks and rebates in the event that everybody's using the same thing. So, you know, so we maybe streamline the menus or the menu items between concepts to be able to have more purchasing power. So, you know, you can say, hey, well, this is how much we we buy in a year. How can you help me? But we all get together to ensure that we're all purchasing from the same 
And in the event that there's a discrepancy and we're supposed to get this product, and we're getting this product, it's it's constant communication. But it, all of those major decisions are upstream, so to speak. But it is important that people upstream, I will say, know how super important it is to have their ear downstream. Great point. Great point. Jay, you talk about that a lot, too, uh, on the equipment and supply side. Uh, but the local salesperson means so much to that. Uh, it can be a national relationship, right. but that local salesperson having contact with, uh, with the restaurant or the hotel in their particular market, that's really helpful. Makes a difference. It gives them a level of comfort that you just can't get if you don't have that situation. Yeah. Before we finish up, Jason, I'd be remiss if uh, you've had a lot of adventures up to this point in the food service and hospitality industry. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what's on the horizon. What is it? What is the next great adventure? Not that you're going to leave what you are. I know it's great what you're doing and you seem like you're really are on a great trajectory there. But what types of future adventures might we see coming out of your uh, bag of tricks? Oh, well, if I knew, I could tell you. But <laughs> honestly, just growing as an operator, becoming more of a multi-unit minded manager and working with those people in order to get them where they need to be. After being in this business for as long as I have, it's I can't do it forever, even though I want to. And I some, often question myself, how long can you at some point? It's time to maybe be less of the physical work. But then again, I mean, it's just it's just a matter of teaching others what I know in order for them to be successful and then for me to grow as a leader in order to manage more people and more units. I'm going to quote my father. If I didn't have to work with people, my job would be easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're with a great organization that's going to give you lots of opportunity, it sounds like. And certainly it's with a brand that we all speak very highly of. And I know many, many other people that do as well. And and it's been great having you on here with us today. Guys, any last questions for Jason? No, a pleasure to meet you, Jason. Likewise. I'm going to be checking out the Nord Nordstrom operations. Yeah, please do. And if you have any questions, feel free to contact me. That's a great establishment up there in Chicago and on Michigan Ave. Thank you. Again, thanks for your time today, Jason. I know you had a hard stop at the hour, of, and we've gone a little bit, I think, beyond that. But uh, we really appreciate your time today, and uh, thanks for joining us on every other Thursday. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. This episode of Every Other Thursday has been brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than nine years, Tabletop Journal has been covering the global food service and hospitality industry, all the while raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. TabletopJournal.com, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places, all in the world of hospitality tabletop. You can learn more about Every Other Thursday by visiting our website, everyotherthursdaypodcast.com. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Every Other Thursday.